Amen. Come on. Bound to the rock. If you wasn't bound to the rock before, you are right now. Thank you, our worship team. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Glenn, for bringing us to the foot of the cross. Encouraging. Uh, let's go to God, the word of prayer. We are going to look at part two of our discussion on the church of Pergamum. If you're joining us for the first time, we started a, a series on the churches, the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So let's go to God with the word of prayer and we'll jump right in. Uh, Heavenly Father God, we thank you for a great worship service thus far. I pray that uh, we can carry on the, um, the praise and, and the worship uh, through your word. I pray that uh, you'll speak through both my wife and I as we share uh, from your word and as we share uh, just the convictions that we've gained from your word and that you want to uh, encourage all of us to share. Uh, Father, we ask that you will help us. Uh, help us to have our hearts and our minds open to what you have to say to us today. Uh, we pray that we will walk out with a deeper con conviction, a deeper desire to know you and to uh, be like your son. And we pray that you'll help us, God, where we're at. Meet us where we're at and help us, uh, help us to overcome whatever it is that's keeping us from being our absolute best for you. Father, we love you and thank you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're going to jump right into Revelation chapter 2. Just a recap here, verses 12 through 17. Uh, we started to say today we're going to look at part two, the compromising church, the church in Pergamum. And right here in Revelation <clears throat> chapter 2, starting in verse 12, it reads, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who have taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food <clears throat> sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have, also, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Uh, last week, we started to look at the church here in Pergamum, or, or otherwise known as the Compromising Church. We talked about how Satan could not get this church to break under the pressure of persecution, so he changed up his strategy. He decided to attack the church from within, from within its members. And he sent in a Trojan horse of false, of false Christians who taught false doctrines on compromise. Now, there were two specific groups that Jesus exposed who were re responsible for spreading these false teachings. One group held to the teachings of Balaam, who we know was a prophet who, instead of holding true to God, he decided to compromise because he wanted the king's money, he wanted the reward from the king, he wanted to be in favor of the king, and then he also wanted to please God. 
And so he compromised. And it, what he eventually did was had the Moabites intermarry with the Israelites, which was forbidden. And so he, he, he eventually held strong initially, but then he, he broke down. He gave in and he couldn't resist the temptation. And the other teachings, which we're going to look at more today, the other teachings was by a group called the Nicolaitans. Now, what's interesting is that most scholars believe that these groups were actually Christians. So we're not talking about a group that was attacking the church from the outside. We're talking about a group that started from the inside. You know, if Satan wants to bring down a church, the most effective way is to get her to lower her standards and fit in with the world around her. Sometimes it doesn't have to, we can see certain things from a mile away. Sometimes you can see temptation coming from a mile away. You know to resist. But when you're talking to a brother or sister in Christ who share the same convictions, but they're telling you something that you're not necessarily comfortable with, someone that you should trust, and they're telling you, oh, you don't, you don't have to do that. Or you see them living out a life of compromise, then you start to wonder, well, hey, so-and-so's been doing this. They've been around for 20-plus years. Maybe it is okay. And it takes one person to be convinced, then convince another person, and then before you know it, we have factions in the church spreading dissension, which eventually becomes doctrine, because people are now living by it and believing it and passing it on, and now the church starts to corrode from the inside. So Satan doesn't have to send persecution if he can defeat us from within. Their sin was in compromising their faith for the world. They thought that the best policy was to peacefully coexist and fit in with Roman civilization, Roman, Roman society. There were a lot of things that Rome taught that was against God, such as, like we looked at before, worshiping Caesar. Caesar demanded to be called a god. In fact, people to pledge their loyalty to Rome would say, Caesar is Lord. And so the church knew, well, hey, that's not right because Jesus is Lord. So people were faced with, do we, do we deal with this do op, you know, opposition? Do we give up our comfort and say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord? Or do we stick to our convictions and risk losing it all to keep Jesus Lord of our lives? Jesus encouraged them to hold to the truth and nothing but the truth. And so today, I have one simple point that my wife is going to help me bring across today. And that point is simply this. Do not compromise. Do not compromise. The sacrifice is worth it. The commitment to God is absolutely worth whatever it is Satan's going to throw at your way. The reward for staying fast, the reward for keeping Jesus as Lord far outweighs anything you will endure while you're here on earth. There is nothing Satan can do to you 
that will keep the gift that God has promised you away from you if you decide to stand firm. It's only when we compromise that we risk missing out on what Jesus took 2,000 years to prepare for you. Why would you give it up? By compromising. Have you ever watched segments of a marathon race? I have to admit, I do not. I don't enjoy watching people run for five hours. I think there are more entertaining things on TV. But I will watch a race if there's a runner who has got a lot of publicity. And for the past several, I believe, decade or so, you know, it's been the Kenyans. It's been someone from Kenya who seems to win all of our marathons. And so, there you go, right, bro? Now, I have nothing against it because, like I said, I'm not a marathon runner, so I really don't have no, any, any stake in the game. But when you hear about these runners, you, you, you know, I'm like, man, I, I want to see what's, what's, what's this all about. And so, you know, you watch it, you get, you know, excited about it or, or whatever, but, you know, the Christian walk has been compared to a marathon. And if anyone here has ever tried or attempted to run a marathon, then you know what I'm talking about. Now, I ran cross country in high school, which is like a mini marathon. And I can tell you, I almost died as a teenager trying to complete this race. I started off at a good pace, but I came in dead last, uh, which I'm just glad I finished. All right? Now, if you've ever, if you've probably noticed marathon runners being handed drinks along the way, right? Usually, uh, someone is handing them a cup of water, maybe a cup of Gatorade. And, uh, but one thing you won't find you won't find marathon runners guzzling a cup of Hennessy, a can of Pepsi, or a, a tall Starbucks blonde roast, right? And the reason is because those drinks are loaded with alcohol and caffeine, which are natural di di uh, diuretics, which can de dehydrate you. And so... Marathon runners are careful, very careful, of what they take in their bodies because they know that eating or drinking the wrong foods before or during a race can knock you out of the race. Here in our text, we have Jesus watching the church at Pergamum run its race. He sees how they got off to a good start, but now he's concerned because they're beginning to take the wrong things in their body. The teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And in no, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is telling them to stop compromising. You're taking things into you that will keep you from finishing your race. He doesn't want them to get knocked out of the race, so Jesus tells them, Repent. Change your course of action. Change your mind. Stop doing what you're doing and start doing the right thing. Now, specifically to the church at Pergamum, Jesus was telling them that they need to immediately and decisively deal with the false teachings and false teachers in their midst. See, when it comes to getting rid of things that are false, God shows no compassion for that. God is not sympathetic 
to false teaching in his church. Nor is he sympathetic to those who teach false doctrine in his church. Some of his harshest warnings were against those who were trying to lead his sheep astray. God will not tolerate that. God will not put up with that. In fact, those who teach it, Jesus himself said, I never knew you. So you may have been name dropping me, but I never knew you. Because you're not teaching what I told you to teach. And so God wants us to pay attention to what we're putting into our body as a church. He's saying we need to deal with whatever is keeping us from running the best spiritual race we can. Maybe for you it's anger or addiction that's slowing you down. Maybe it's laziness or lust that's slowing you down. Maybe it's pornography or pride that's slowing you down. I don't know if you saw the Super Bowl this past Sunday. We were in a spiritual household with some spiritual people who decided, hey, we're not going to watch this halftime show because we don't want the men in this room to lust, to be tempted. And I appreciate that spiritual household who made that decision. Some people would have compromised. It's just a halftime show. I don't struggle with that. What's the big deal? It's only J-Lo. It's only Shakira. She only wrote a song, My Hips Don't Lie. I mean, who would struggle with that? You may not struggle, but what about your guests? If you compromise, you embolden them to compromise. And some people cannot afford to compromise. Some of us are overcoming addiction, have been sober for years. And when we're around Christians who don't consider your struggle, it emboldens you. It makes you think, well, maybe I can handle it. It's been over 16. It's been over 20. It's been over 10 years. Maybe I can handle a drink because I see how my brother and sister is able to do it. You compromise, someone else will be tempted to compromise. Maybe we've been refusing to forgive someone, and that's keeping you from moving forward. Maybe even though God has forgiven you, you have yet to forgive yourself. Whatever it is that's negatively affecting your relationship with God, Jesus is calling you to stop taking it lightly and do something about it. Start dealing with it seriously. Not later, but now. Not tomorrow, not a week from now, right now. Jesus wants us to take it serious. The reason is obvious. The longer we tolerate that thing that's negatively affecting our relationship with God, the more difficult it will be to deal with. For me, that was bitterness and resentment. There were people in my life that hurt me deeply. And I, hold, I held grudges for years. We could be in the same room laughing and joking, watching a game, and you not know that I can't stand your guts. I was a master at hiding it. And when I sat down at the table and the scriptures were open, and they said, James, is there anything in your life that's keeping you from moving forward with God? I thought, no. 
Is there anyone in your life that you have not forgiven? Yeah. Well, you need to forgive them. Or else you can't have the type of relationship with God that he's calling you to have. And I had to wrestle with that because there were, there were things that I held in my heart for so many years that it hardened my heart toward people. There were some people I hadn't talked to for years because of how, how deeply they hurt me. And, you know, when, you, when you're used to holding on to bitterness and resentment, sometimes the hurt is not that big a deal. But because you're in a habit of holding on to grudges, everything is deep. Everything gets escalated. And now you can't trust people. You're suspicious around people. You don't open up your heart anymore to people. And I knew when I sat down that I had a decision to make. If I'm going to walk with God, then I have to learn to forgive those who hurt me. Because otherwise, how could God forgive me? It was painful to relive the hurt. It was more painful hearing myself say, I forgive you. Because when you hold on to that for a while, you get so used to it, you become comfortable with it. And it actually becomes a refuge for you. Because you don't have to deal with the conflict. And so it was easy for me to hold on to, to bitterness and resentment because I didn't have to talk to the person. It was just easy. I just, I just put them in my, in my bitterness box, in that bitterness room with all the resentment that I was storing. It was a lot easier to deal with it that way. But I was confronted with the truth. I had to go in there and with the help of God, unlock that room and let everyone that I didn't forgive and held bitterness and resentment, I had to let them out of that room. Because I couldn't move forward without it. You know, the longer we tolerate that thing, that negatively affects our relationship, the more difficult it will become to deal with. You know, I want you to see, can you guys see this image? Take a look at this picture of this tree. I know that you know that this tree didn't have that fence growing next to it one day and have it grow in the middle of the trunk the next day. This took years. This tree grew around this fence, and eventually the fence became a part of the tree. Can you get that fence out of the tree? Gonzalo probably could because he, he you know, he's a carpenter. He, he probably knows how to cut around it and, and still probably even save some of the tree. Right? But at what cost to the tree? You see, Jesus knows that the longer we tolerate sin in our lives, the greater its hold becomes on our hearts. It becomes a part of us. So when we need to deal with getting it out of our hearts, get it out of our lives, it can be done, but it's going to be painful. Just like removing a fence from the tree. 
there's going to be some damage. There's going to be some pain. But this is why Jesus wants us to deal with it now and not let it grow, not let our lives grow around that sin. Because eventually it will be tough to get rid of. I'm going to ask my wife to come up and share. Good morning, church. Um, first of all, I want to start by saying it's an honor to lead the women's ministry here and to have the opportunity to share some thoughts with you this morning. Isn't that an incredible image? Um, similar to the church in Pergamum, in this ministry there are women who are strong, who've been through ups and downs and many trials and have remained true to God's name. Women who have not renounced their faith. However, similar to the church in Pergamum, we also must be careful not to compromise. Um, as James mentioned with this image, you can see that it had to happen a little bit at a time. And that's really how compromise happens. It's one decision at a time, little things that lead to something bigger. So what is compromise when it comes to our faith? Because compromise is not always a bad thing, right? In the most basic of definitions, a compromise is an agreement, a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. In marriage, in friendships, in relationships, this is necessary. We negotiate. I, I see it this way. You see it this way. Let's come to the middle. I want to do it this way. You want to do it that way. Let's come up with a compromise. It's not all bad. But when it comes to our faith, Compromise can also mean to accept standards that are lower than what is desirable. To change our mind, to give way, to give in, to yield, to acquiesce. This is when compromise becomes dangerous and destructive. When you lower your standards, when you set aside your convictions and godly values in order to please others or to be comfortable. When something that used to not be acceptable starts to become acceptable. When it comes to God's truth, as it's revealed in his word, he desires our obedience. That we hold fast to him. The scriptures say that many times. Hold to him. Hold fast to him. So that he can guide us and protect us and teach us and bless us. And so that we together as God's holy people can reveal his glory to the world around us. We learn in 1 Timothy 4.16, through Paul's words to Timothy, that we should watch our life and doctrine closely. And persevere in these things. That means it's not going to be easy. But persevere. Don't quit. Because it will lead to salvation for us and for our hearers, those who we share the gospel with. First Timothy 4, 16 in the New Living Translation is behind you. Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. You can see why Jesus' warning to the church of Pergamum was so important, because this was a salvation issue. The compromise could have led to them losing their salvation. When it comes to the lifestyle and doctrine that Jesus gives us, there are principles and values that are non-negotiable. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 4, and you're going to see 1 through 3 on the screen, but I'll continue to read. It says, Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. 
the very beginning of Psalm 119. It says that when people have integrity, they're joyful. When we seek with all of our hearts to obey God's word, we are joyful. And God is pleased with those who do not compromise with evil, but walk only in his paths. Two weeks ago, James preached about Polycarp. He mentioned in his message um, an elder in the church in Smyrna who was burned at the stake because of his faith. He refused to denounce Christ, and therefore he lost his life. He was put for death for not compromising. And something that James said really, really struck me, really stuck out to me. He said, our, our lives are not at stake, and yet we are denouncing Christ for much lesser reasons. And, and I thought about that. Our lives are not at stake, at least not yet in America. But it may happen. It may come a time. I believe the grace period is closing on us. There may come a time where it is a matter of life and death to be a Christian in America. But right now, our life is not at stake. We may not be facing death because of our faith. But we are faced with being criticized, ostracized, made fun of, misunderstood. You know, Jesus lived a life of sacrifice, and that's what we're called to imitate as his followers. I believe the strongest pull of compromise is just in the decisions that we make to try to water down Christianity into a comfortable, convenient, neatly scheduled, easier lifestyle. Jesus addressed these issues in Luke chapter 9 when he talks about what it means to truly be his disciple. We compromise when we claim to be Jesus' disciples, but lives lives not keeping with the principles of the scriptures, but rather living like the world. When we profess to follow Christ, but the cravings of worldly success and accolades and praise from people around us become prioritized over Christ, this is a compromise. When we put aside our total allegiance and devotion to God by allowing the allurements of the world, along with their worries, to take over our lives, this is compromise. And you know it by your schedule. You know it by your thoughts. How much of your time is spent thinking about these things rather than Christ and advancing his kingdom? These things are compromises. We compromise when we fail to accept the word of God and sound teaching. We compromise when we place our desires and that of others over the word of God. And we're tempted in obvious and subtle ways to compromise in both areas, our life and in our doctrine. I want to ask the women in the room, ladies, do we still have deep convictions about avoiding sin in our lives? And I'm not just talking about the obvious sins. Like the Bible says, there's certain things that are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, drunkenness, hatred. There's things that are obvious. But not just those things. Also the sins of the heart. Things like pride, rebellion, selfishness, dishonesty. You know, yesterday, I was tempted to compromise. I was at the grocery store. And you know how you have that, the cart, the part of the cart where you put your bag, and then you have the big part that you put all the food in? Well, I had a carton of tomatoes that I had in the top because I didn't want them to get smashed by everything. You know how you do that. I put them in the top of the cart. And I went through the whole transaction. I paid for everything. And as I started to walk out, I realized the tomatoes were still there. And I was like, oh, I have somewhere to go. I don't have time to stop and deal with this. You know, I had so many thoughts went through my mind at that moment, right? Um, it's such a small thing. I was like, oh, I just paid over $100 in groceries. This thing was 99 cents. It's not a big deal. You know, it's going to be inconvenient for the cashier. Now he's ringing up somebody else. Now I'm going to go back and deal with this. It's going to be inconvenient for this guy. 
So all these things are going through my mind. I started to walk out. And then I realized, if this buzzer goes off in the store, <laughs> and I get stopped for a 99-cent carton of tomatoes, that is stupid. That is stupid, you know? And, and it really wasn't immediately like, I just need to do the right thing. I'm like, that would be stupid. That would be a stupid reason to get stopped. So then I was like, okay, what do I do in this situation, right? So I, I said to the man, uh, do you remember ringing up these tomatoes? You know, and he said, well, let me, at first he actually was going to say, just, he started to do that and one of his coworkers walked up. <laughs> and so he said, well, let me see your receipt, right? So I gave him my receipt and he looked through it. Meanwhile, the other guy here had just finished his transaction. You see how God worked it out? So he was able to leave. So I did the right thing. I paid for the tomatoes, you know. It was just a dollar, but it, it was the right thing to do. But, you know, these are little things that come up in our lives as we're trying to practice our faith. And compromise, again, it happens by little decisions that lead down the line to bigger ones. If I claim to be a disciple of Jesus, then I must walk in the light at all times. That's my conviction. You know, I think about... Um, just examples in this ministry of women who have not compromised that I'm so proud of. I know of a mom who lives in one school district and whose kids go to school, I'm sorry, she lives in one district and works in another school district. And it's difficult getting the kids to school, then getting to work, then having to get off work, get back to where they go to school to, to do the things that she needs to do. And time after time after time, her coworkers have tried to convince her to lie and say that she lives where she works so they can go to school right around the corner from her job. And that's what they're doing. Come on, it's not a big deal. It'll make your life easier. And see, that's just what it is. But it's not true. And so she's had to choose, because she loves God, to do what's right, to not compromise. I'm so proud of her for that. You know, the scriptures tell us to obey the law of the land. As long as it doesn't compromise our faith in Christ, right? For a disciple to be dishonest, to lie to the government for personal gain is a compromise. There are sisters who have come to God living with boyfriends that they were not married to. And it was helpful for their lives, for their finances. But because they wanted to make Jesus Lord, because they wanted to honor God, they've taken the step to move out of those situations or to ask the man to move out. And you know what? In the short term, it's uncomfortable. They struggle financially because it's, 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 it's easier to live in the sin and benefit. But because their faith in Christ, they've chosen not to compromise. I'm so proud of those sisters. I know that God is pleased and he will bless it. That's, and that's what living by faith is all about. It's trusting that when we do what is right, that God will bless it even in the short term, if it seems to be uncomfortable and inconvenient and difficult. I know women who are in this room who are recovering alcoholics, as James mentioned, that when they are offered drinks, they say no when other people say yes. I'm so proud of them. Don't ever compromise your convictions about your sobriety. I know women in this room, single women, who deeply desire the companionship of a partner. But because the scriptures teach us not to be bound together with unbelievers. They have said no repeatedly to the advances of men to date them because they love God and they want to honor God. I'm so proud of each one of you. 
And I know that God is pleased with you. I want to encourage you to hold on. Don't compromise. It will be worth it. Not only are we tempted to compromise in our lives, but also in our doctrine. One of the ways that Satan switched up his tactics with the church in Pergamum was through this false teaching creeping into the church. And it can happen to us, too. They thought they could bow to the Roman government and still bow to Christ, that they could serve both. But Jesus says we can't serve two masters. These false doctrines can seep into our ministry as well. You know, the lifestyle of discipleship is clear in the scriptures. And how a person receives salvation is also clear in the scriptures. When we let go of these things and call someone a Christian, when these things are not being held to in their lives, sisters, that is a compromise. And it often doesn't come from an evil place. It comes from a place of love and a desire for unity. However, we must not put aside God's truth for the sake of unity or in the name of love. This is not biblical love. We can always acknowledge and respect others' faith and see the sincerity and the good in it. But we must not compromise by saying for sure that we know about someone's eternal destiny if they have not held to the teachings of Jesus. We must continue to hold to the truth and teach the truth from the scriptures and then leave the rest to God to be the loving and faithful and just judge that he is. While Jesus was compassionate and sympathetic, he was not tolerant of sin or mistruth. This is just one example of a doctrine that we can be tempted to compromise on, but there are many others. Jesus is the perfect example of one who did not compromise his faith or convictions while he lived on earth, even to the point of death. It was sacrificial, it was uncomfortable, but because of his faithfulness to God, we all benefit. And I pray that we can imitate him and our brother Antipas that was mentioned here in this letter, who held up, was held up by Jesus in the church in Pergamum as one who was a faithful witness even to the point of death. Thank you. Amen. Baby, thank you for not stealing the tomatoes. So how do we, how do we avoid compromising our faith? How, how can we get in tune with God's will for our lives? How can we know what's sin and what isn't sin? How can we know what we need to stop doing, start doing, or keep doing? How can we tell right from wrong? How can we discern truth from error? I'm going to make this very simple for us. In John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You jump down to verse 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What makes us free, church? Holding to his teachings. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus goes on and he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. It's just another way of saying, hold to my teachings. But this time he says, if you love me, you will hold it. See, it's not just so much about a sense of duty. 
It's also about love. So this is a relationship right here. My wife and I will be celebrating 20 years of marriage in April. And 20 years ago, we made vows to one another. If we never intend to keep those vows, if we deliberately break those vows, then we're not love. That's not love. So love is I'm going to be committed to the vows that I put before you, God, and his church. And Jesus is saying, if you love me, then, then, then do what I command. Do what I ask you to do. That's how you show you're my love, uh, that you love me. And then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Here we have, you hold to his word if you want to know the truth, and then he gives us his Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, which works together with God's word to help us stay in the truth. In John chapter 4, verses 23 to 26, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. He, he who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, with whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. How do you keep from compromising your faith? You hold to Jesus' teachings, and you keep in step with the spirit of truth through obedience. How do you keep in step? You simply obey. You do what it says. How do you keep in step with New York's laws? You obey. What happens when you, when you step outside of that law? There's punishment. There's consequences. Jesus wants us to avoid that. He keeps it very simple. Hold to my teachings and do what it says. He tells us in, 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 um, in Mark that if we want our lives to weather any storm that life brings at it, practice what you've heard. That's how you build your home. That's how you build your life on rock. Anything outside of that, you're building your life on sand. It will get blown away. So in conclusion, I want to close with this, this slide by A.W. Tozer. One compromise here, another there, and soon enough, the so-called Christian and the man in the world look the same. The last time I checked, those who were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit became a holy priest. That means you were set apart. That means you were distinct for God's purposes, when we compromise our faith to fit into the world, we look no different than the world we're called to save. We cannot afford compromise. You know, Jesus promises to overcome us two things. They will receive some of the hidden manna and that they will receive a white stone with a secret name written on it. Most scholars believe that the hidden manna is most likely uh, sim uh, symbolic of spiritual nourishment, that faithful believers will receive for keeping their church doctrinally pure until the time Christ comes. And the white stone is symbolic of being declared innocent. You see, back in Jesus' days, jurors were given, often given two stones to start a trial, a white stone and a black stone. After both sides of a case were presented, 
a juror would show his belief in the guilt or innocence of an individual by casting forward one of those two stones. The black stone, if he believed that the person on trial was guilty, and the white stone, if he believed the person was innocent. Jesus knows that you and I have failed to keep all his commandments. He will let us know, he will let it be known that because he died for us, and because we committed to a life of discipleship, of lordship to him, that those things will not be held against us, and that you and I will not be punished because he's already taken the punishment upon himself. When Jesus declares us as his own before the Father, he identifies with us as someone who is both guilty and forgiven. And it will mean that we get to enter heaven and spend eternity with him. That is what we were created for. We were made to spend eternity with God the Father in heaven. And that is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Jesus does not say, come to me once you get your act together. No, he says, come right now just as you are. Baggage, dirt, garbage, everything. Bring it on in. Some of us won't entertain guests if they're bringing in a whole lot of baggage. Check it at the door. I don't got room for all that. Jesus is like, no, bring it all. Bring all your abuses. Bring all your hurts. Bring all your pain. Bring all your addiction. Bring all your sin. Bring all every. Bring it. Let's get together. The good news. You come as you are, and I'll receive you just as you are. The better news. I won't leave you that way. I'm going to change you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to make you into something better that you've never realized. The best news eternal life in heaven will be in our future. We get to spend the rest of our lives with our God and creator. There are no more sin, no more disease, no more pain, no more suffering. That would be in your future if and only if you do not compromise your faith. To God be the glory.